What is the tyranny of the majority? And what can we do about it? We're going to talk about that on episode 758 of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter. Like my Facebook page and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Again, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you're listening to the show. Share it around on social media. Give it that five-star review or leave a text review. That's how we grow the audience. And send me those show requests. I do want to read what you want to hear. You can also support the show, as always, by going to mclanahanacademy.com. It's a great website. You get great content. I've got a new live class out, American Slavery. The enrollment for that closes on January 24th. So you want to get in on it because it's got a cap on the enrollment. And so just go on out to mclanahanacademy.com. Check that out. Or if you're on my email list, of course, you'll get coupons for it. And I am running a $200 off coupon on that particular class. So those classes are awesome because you get me live. You get me live four times to ask questions and uh, you know, go through the material with you. So it's a great opportunity to get to become one of my students, essentially, is what you're going to do. All right. Well, let's talk about the topic I mentioned at the top of the program, Tyranny of the Majority. And Andrew Napolitano wrote a little piece about this at lourockwell.com. If you don't read lourockwell.com, you should. lourockwell.com. It's a great uh, link-based site. He's got links to interesting articles every day of the week. Uh, I should say six days of the week, right? He's got a weekend edition, then he's got new content Monday through Friday. And I've been reading Lou Rockwell for, you know, gosh, close to 30 years now. And he's been doing this. And so uh, if you don't know about it, you should. Well, back in December, Judge Andrew Napolitano wrote a little piece about democracy. And of course, this works nicely with the theme that we've had this week. We talked about secession and what can be done about that. Or, or at least why we should even consider decentralization secession. One of the problems is democracy. Without question, one of the problems is democracy. Uh, how do we check the tyranny of the majority? How do we check the 50 plus one, 50% plus one, that can abuse the other 50% minus one? I mean, if you have 101 people and 51 people vote for one thing and 50 people don't, well... That's democracy, according to our modern American system. But we know that that could produce awful effects. The 51 could go out and abuse the 50. And constitutional checks, or I should say paper checks, like a Bill of Rights or even a written constitution, simply don't always offer the the type of protection you want as a minority in, uh, in popular government. And look... This is what John C. Calhoun was concerned about, protecting minorities. I've told this story before, but I remember years ago, I was working in a mailroom, and uh, there was a guy there that um, was, uh, he, he was very far on the left. And I mentioned this, and he said, oh yeah, that's what we got to do, we got to protect minorities. And so I started talking about Calhoun, and he didn't like that, because Calhoun is the guy that was the defender of slavery. This is in South Carolina. And so it's amazing to me uh, how 
how people just have this adverse reaction to Calhoun once you mention his name. There's nothing that he can say that was good. He is, in many ways, in most people's mind in America, I should say, you know, kind of the American Hitler. And, and it's unfortunate because Calhoun was a Republican. Uh, Calhoun had um, very valuable things to say about government, uh, particularly constitutional government. His two treatises on government uh, that he wrote that were published after his death are just fantastic works of political science. Um, he was prescient in ways that nobody else was. He had served in the government for nearly all of his adult life, whether it was in Congress, the Senate, or the executive branch. And so Calhoun really knew American government well. He wasn't a Nazi. He wasn't a fascist. He wasn't a proto-fascist. He wasn't anything. He was a Republican interested in the preservation of minority rights, which is important. I mean, this is where a lot of people on the on the neoconservatives and the Straussians call Calhoun the uh, the progenitor of modern progressivism because they think that well, here's this guy. He's a he's a man that believes in minority rights and identity politics and all these things. But people were doing that anyways. And this is this is the fascinating part of all of this. You know, talking about you know George Will yesterday. George Will's playing identity politics. He just doesn't even realize it. Uh, and this has been going on almost throughout all of American history. It wasn't something that Calhoun invented. People were playing identity politics even during the Philadelphia Convention. There was some discussion about North-South, Middle States, or Eastern States, they called them. People identified with different parts and different regions of the United States. They identified with certain cultures. They just didn't classify it by race or gender or class. But they certainly identified with... Uh, a culture or a region or a state that identified with those things because there is something inherent about identity. You know, you, there is something there to that. You, you, you can't get around it in life. Uh, we may not talk about it all the time, but you have, you have a perception of yourself that's based on an identity that's usually forged through culture. So when Napolitano talks about the problems of majoritarian government, this is something that Americans really should wrestle with. How do we protect minorities, whatever minorities those may be, from the tyranny of the majority? And then how do we, how do we most importantly, define a majority? That really becomes the issue. Is it simply 50% plus one? Is that a majority? Or should we have larger majorities? Because with larger majorities, you have, with, say, super majorities you have certain checks on the minority. In fact, one of the best things that could ever happen in Congress would be to have a supermajority threshold for any legislation to get passed outside of, say, certain things. And those certain things could be commerce or defense. But you would have to have some type of supermajority to do anything. That's all Calhoun was essentially saying with the concurrent majority. There needed to be some type of check from the minority, a veto, so to speak, you can call it nullification, you can call it interposition, you can call it something. He called it the concurrent majority, where you check the majority and you check their power, particularly if they're doing things that are unconstitutional. So this is where you get to the Tenth Amendment. This is where you get to nullification at the state level, all of those things. But even in the states, you can still have tyrannical government. There's no, there's no question about it. And the further away the government is from the population, like in California, where you have a representative ratio of nearly 300,000 to 1 in your state legislature, you don't really have representative government anymore. So the best thing you can do is decentralize down to the local level. County government, city government, 
state government. This is really where the rubber hits the road, and this is why I talk about on this show all the time. You got to think locally, act locally. Somebody asked me on on uh, YouTube, I think it was, how do you think locally, act locally? By the way, if you're watching on YouTube, click on that little heart button under the video if you love it. That's a super thanks button. You can throw a few pennies my way if you're on if you're on uh, YouTube. But how do you think locally? Well, you start going to your city council meetings or your county commissions. You start paying attention to what your government, your local government is doing with things because that does affect your everyday life. That's your trash pickup, your recycling if your city does that, your water service, your your uh, police departments, your fire departments. And maybe you don't have uh, you know paid fire department or you don't have some of these other services. Uh, maybe you have a very small you know small town government. But this is your zoning. This is this is how you know things are done. Your business licenses, all of that stuff, is done through your city government, your local government. What's really amazing to me as I'm recording this and watching the shenanigans in Congress, which by the way is beautiful. And of course, I talked about last week what the um, what the MAGA Republicans and the Squad have in common, and that's obstructionism. That's what they can do, and they're doing it well for uh, McCarthy and his bid for speaker. But what um, what this says, you know, is that people really don't care what Congress does. I mean, Congress has not been doing anything for days, and nobody cares. The only people that are making a stink about it are the Democrats, because of course they want to legislate and do work. But we want those people doing as little work as possible, because that's really what they're constitutionally charged to do. Very, very little. Most of the work that you're going to find in government comes from the state and local. So let's get into this piece by Napolitano. Uh, and, and again, I, I can't talk enough about this stuff, you know, the, the importance of state and local government, because it really does matter in your everyday life. So this is from December, uh, the tyranny of the majority. And so uh, he begins with a quote, which is better to be ruled by one tyrant 3,000 miles away or by 300 tyrants one mile away? This is rather an Reverend Mather Bliles, Blies, I'm sorry. Uh, and he says, does it really matter if the instrument curtailing liberty is a monarch or a properly elected legislature? The conundrum, along with the witty version of it put to a Boston crowd in 1775 by the little-known colonial era preacher with the famous Uncle Cotton Mather, addresses the age-old question of whether liberty can long survive in a democracy. Blaise was a loyalist who, along with about one-third of the American adult white male population in 1776, opposed the American Revolution in favor of continued governance by Great Britain. Now, that number is interesting, that one-third number. Uh, that's a number that's often thrown around. Nobody really knows. There was no polling. There was no, uh, you know, some type of Rasmussen reports back then. We think it was about one-third. It could have been about one-quarter. could have been about one-tenth. No one really knows. And I think most American uh, support for the war or against the war depended on what was going on in their local community. And what I mean by that is if the British were occupying a region, most of the population would have generally been in favor of British occupation because they didn't want to be subjected to tyranny. They didn't want to have their, their lives disrupted in any way. So wherever the British were generally entrenched, you saw more loyalists than not. Now, this doesn't mean it was always the case. I mean, you can look at South Carolina and Charlestown. It wasn't Charleston yet. It was Charlestown. And the British occupation of Charlestown and how what, what they did there in executing a very prominent member of the community really turned the people of Charlestown against them during, during the war. So 
The British thought that Charlestown would have been in favor of the crown and the parliament because you generally had in the South more loyalist tendencies, at least it was thought. You had more cavaliers and you had all these, these ruffians in New England. It turns out that there were a lot of ardent patriots in the South because they were interested, as I've talked about before, in the ancient constitutions and English liberties, the Anglo-American tradition. These are the things they were interested in, and they saw in the British occupation tyranny. They saw in that a threat to these long-standing traditions that they had been living under and their families had been living under for, at that point, nearly 500 years. They saw a real threat in that. So the 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 Redcoats did it to themselves, the regulars, the British Army. They did it to themselves in how they treated uh, the population, particularly in the South, and what they did throughout the throughout the uh, countryside and other things. And you had you know bloody band marauding through the countryside. So, uh, but regardless, um, we don't know the exact number. This is just a guess. The, the third for the third against the third in the middle. I think it's actually probably closer to a quarter each side than about fifty percent in the middle. That 50% would go back and forth. He says, uh, He didn't fight, meaning Blythe, for the king or agitate against George Washington's troops. He merely warned of the dangers of too much democracy. No liberty-minded thinker I know of, serious, uh, of seriously argues today in favor of hereditary monarchy. But many of us are fearful of an out-of-control democracy, which is what we have in America today. I say democracy because there remain in our federal structure a few safeguards against runaway federal tyranny, such as the equal state representation in the Senate, the Electoral College, the state control of federal elections, and life-tenured federal judges and justices. Now, that's interesting he points these things out. These are the checks supposedly against runaway tyranny of the, democ- of, of the majority, but there are also checks against nationalism. And really, that's what Napolitano was talking about here. Nationalism. He's talking about Uh, checks against the center being controlled by an alien group, whether it's in the colonial, or I should say the early federal period, whether it's New England, if you're in the South, or whether it's the South, if you're in New England. The whole idea of federalism and the structure was to protect local interests from the center, every issue becoming quote-unquote national. In fact, if you've read my Founding Fathers' Guide to the Constitution, or if you've taken my American Constitutions class, or my Originalist Papers class at McClanahan Academy, you should take all of that stuff, by the way. If you've taken any of those or read that book, you know that the a national government was explicitly rejected in Philadelphia. They didn't want it. They didn't want a national government. And so he mentions the Senate, equal representation in the Senate. That, it's, that doesn't do much anymore because the Senate now is just a glorified House of Representatives. It's an awful place. And the people, I mean, look, when Fetterman gets elected to the Senate, we see the degradation of that body. Fetterman, who can't even put a sentence together, who looks really like Carl from Sling Blade. I mean, he stands like it. His facial expressions are like it. The guy is uh, brain dead, basically. I mean, he, he is. And yet, he's in, who, who, the real power in that situation is his wife. Uh, his wife is basically running the show. And so we have a, a man that can't function, but yet he's a senator of the United States. It's, it's embarrassing. You want to talk about embarrassing. 
Look at the people that are in office now in America. It shows you how bad America really is. Napolitano says, of course the Senate, as originally crafted, did not consist of properly elected senators. Rather, they were appointed by state legislatures to represent the sovereign states as states, not people, not the people in them. Part of James Madison's genius was the construction of the federal government as a three-sided table. The first side stood for the people, the House of Representatives. The second stood for the sovereign states that created the federal government, the Senate. And the third stood for the nation-state, the presidency. The judiciary, whose prominent role today was unthinkable in 1789, was not part of the mix. Now, here is where I would disagree with Napolitano in some way. It was actually a four-legged stool. It wasn't a three-legged... You can't can't have a three-legged stool. I mean, you can, but it doesn't work as well as a four-legged stool. It's much more sturdy. It wasn't just the branches of government, but also the states were involved in this. If you want to say you have the House, the Senate, and the Presidency... And then, of course, you had the states. Now, um, I would say that it's more in line. I would actually disagree. They did talk about the effect of the judiciary. This was this was discussed. I would say that you actually have the legislative, executive, judiciary, and then the states. You would have the three branches as checks on each other, and then the states. And people did talk about judicial review. Now, the way the federal uh, ju- judiciary is used today was not unthinkable. In fact, the opponents of the Constitution pointed out the way that it would be used. This is amazing. I've talked about this. Jamel Bowie has said, hey, we need to listen to Brutus because they were warning against the federal judiciary and the power it was going to have. They understood it. They knew it was going to happen. So, um, But the judiciary was seen, someone like Patrick Henry, for example, as a check on unconstitutional legislation. It was discussed. So the, that was there, and you had this four-legged stool because the states were involved in that. And as it was said in various state ratifying conventions, if the gen- even by Alexander Hamilton in Federalist, in the Federalist essays, if the general government passes unconstitutional legislation, it is void. So who's going to void that legislation? Well, the states can, right? They just don't obey it. This is this is the part of the, of the state legislature, and we know that they thought this because they did it throughout the colonial period. In fact, as I've mentioned many times, Edmund Morgan has a, has a chapter in his book on the Stamp Act, the Stamp Act Crisis, titled Nullification, because this is what they were doing. In his famous bank speech, Madison er- argued eloquently against legislation chartering a national bank because the authority to create the bank was not present, not only not present in the Constitution, but was uh, restrained by the states and reserved to them by the Tenth Amendment. In that speech, he warned that the creeping expansion of the federal government would trample the powers of the states and also the unenumerated rights of the people that the Ninth Amendment, the pride and joy because it protected natural rights, prohibited the government from denying or disparaging. Now, I would recommend, um, again, I think that Napolitano is a little loose here with what the Ninth Amendment is supposed to do. Uh, I would recommend, there was a very good essay on this at the Abbeville Institute by uh, Bill Watkins, um, and uh, I can't remember the exact title of it, but if you go out and look for, at abbevilleinstitute.org, Bill Watkins, we just published it uh, not long ago, and he talks about the original intent of the Ninth Amendment, and it wasn't this long list of unenumerated rights. It was to work in conjunction with the Tenth Amendment. That was it. I mean, it, it wasn't to create new rights out of thin air, and he has, uh, he has all kinds of evidence for this throughout the ratification debates and how people talked about it. So go look at that essay. Maybe I'll maybe I'll do that on the show. I might even do it tomorrow because I haven't decided what I'm going to do tomorrow. But that would be a good show. I, I did 
discuss it on the Abbey Institute podcast, but only in brief uh, in brief passing. So maybe I'll do a, a long uh, episode on it. He gave the speech in February of 1791, 11 months before the addition of the Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments, to the Constitution. Given the popular fears of a new central government, Madison assumed that the Bill of Rights would be quickly ratified. He was right. This bank speech remains just as relevant today. And look, I agree with this. And what Madison was doing in the bank speech was simply articulating how the Constitution was ratified in 1787 and 1788. These are the arguments that were made at that particular time. This is what people were saying about it then. And so uh, this is important to understand. Ratification gave the Constitution its breadth, its life, its, its validity. That's what Madison argued then. And this is what he's doing in 1791 before the Bill of Rights had been ratified because he's arguing from a, an originalist position. And, and, and again, this is how the proponents, the friends of the Constitution, argued for ratification. Um, it's also important to note that Madison and Hamilton did have a discussion about a bank in Philadelphia on a long walk in August of 1787. They went outside and they talked about it. And they decided that a bank would not be added, the power to charter a bank would not be added to the document because no one would agree to it then. <laughs> and so they could deal with this later. Now, I think Matt, uh, Hamilton thought that meant, well, then we should propose it once we get the government established. I think what Madison saw is that they couldn't do it because it, it still would destroy the fabric of the union because you're going to unconstitutional powers at that point. Had Madison been alive during the presidency of the anti-Madisonian Woodrow Wilson, who gave us World War I, the Federal Reserve, the administrative state, and the federal income tax, he would have recoiled at a president destroying the three-sided table. Wilson did that by leading the campaign to amend the Constitution so as to provide for the direct popular election of senators. Nor would Madison have stomached the efforts today by liberal Democrats to amend the Constitution to provide for the direct popular election of the president. They're not even, going to, they're not even doing that anymore. Look, I just saw, I think it was yesterday, Elizabeth Warren pounding the table about this again, about abolishing the Electoral College. They don't even have to do that. What they're trying to do is a national popular vote initiative. They're trying to do an end around, and they can probably pull it off with this. And then get enough states to agree that uh, whoever wins the popular vote overall gets their Electoral College votes. The states could just do an end around. They don't have to uh, divvy out their Electoral College votes based on how their state votes. They could divvy out their Electoral College votes uh, on any way. I mean, it could be just as long as it's I mean, any, any, any process, as long as it's Republican, they could do it. They could look at the popular vote and say, we're going to divvy out our Electoral College votes based on how the national popular vote turns out. Because we have citizens of this state who are voting in a national election. This is a national election. It's not a state election. So we're just going to consolidate everything and that's how we and if you get enough states to do it that have 270 electoral college votes it really doesn't matter what the rest of the United States does and the way that we're polarizing things now right people moving out of California people moving into Texas you're getting these larger and larger mega states when i say mega states i'm, I'm talking about you know like Texas Florida and California they're the three mega states now new york is is losing population California is also losing population. Texas and Florida are gaining population. But it takes several years. You have to have continual processes to review that. And it's going to be the next census before we start We reallocate electoral college votes again. Uh, so we're talking about 
you know, 2030 before this happens. We've got we've got several years before we do that again. I could see actually California losing some more electoral college votes and Texas and Florida gaining some. But regardless, California is still going to have a ton of them. And even if they get down in the 40s, they're still going to have a large number of electoral college votes. And if they could bond together with all the other leftist states, you know, Washington, Oregon, New England, New York, and they could somehow come up with a number that's 270 that they know they can continually get because they're going to go blue or Democrat, the game's over. They've won. They're just going to go with the national popular vote. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. So they don't have to amend the Constitution for this. This is the dirty little secret. Part of Madison's genius was to craft anti-democratic elements into the Constitution. And some of them, like retaining state sovereignty, created laboratories of liberty. President Ronald Reagan reminded the American public in his first inaugural address that the states formed the federal government, not the other way around. Had I been the uh, scrivener of that speech, I would have begged him to add in the powers that the states gave to the feds they can take back. Uh, yeah, I mean, Reagan was in, rhetorically in that speech, uh, was probably one of the best quote-unquote conservatives or at least you know, constitutionally-minded presidents we've had, in, in, particularly in the last you know, 100-plus years. Reagan did some horrible things behind the scenes in allowing the neocons and the Straussians to gain a foothold in the, in the executive branch and uh, gain power in a lot of the think tanks and other things. But that's done a lot, to, and that's done a lot to destroy real American conservatism. But regardless, uh, Reagan uh, was also um, you know, saying something true here. Now, uh, these anti-democratic elements are important. In fact, the Constitution was, uh, was an anti-democratic document. I mean, it was by design that way. You know, they thought the states had too much democracy. And so um, this is what they want to do to check that. Reagan also famously said that we could vote with our feet. If you don't like the over-the-top regulations in Massachusetts, you can move to New Hampshire. If you're fed up with the highest state taxes in the Union in New Jersey, you can move to Pennsylvania. But the more state sovereignty the feds absorbed, the more state governance that it federalized, it should say, nationalized, nationalized, not federalized. We've got to stop using this term federal as synonymous with national. No, it nationalized. Federalism is decentralization. The fewer differences uh, there are among the regulatory and taxing structures of the states. This has happened because Congress has become a general legislature without regard for the constitutional limits imposed on it. And I mean, look, right, there was a, one of these squad members going to D.C., I talked about this last week, and her whole thing was um, she's going there for fair housing and uh, you know something else that was you know not even in the purview of the general government. Not, I mean, not if you look at the original Constitution, nobody would have argued for this stuff. Um, but she's she's uh, not from the United States, um, or at least her family wasn't. She was born here. She was uh, you know what you would call an anchor baby. That's that's the term that's often used. Uh, so her parents were illegal immigrants, and she was born here. And so this is the uh, the Wong Kim Ark decision, or at least opinion, and what that did. Uh, it allowed for that to happen. But um, so you you have that situation. But she doesn't really understand American government. If Congress wants to regulate an area of human behavior that it is clearly beyond its constitutional competence, it bribes the states to do so with borrowed or Federal Reserve created cash. Thus, it offered hundreds of millions of dollars to the states to lower their speed limits on highways and to lower the acceptable blood alcohol level in people's veins. This would have truly set Madison off before a presumption of DUI may be argued, all in return for cash to pave state-maintained highways. I mean, 
This is true. It's the cash. If the states, the biggest issue in federalism today is the cash. It's the cash drip, right? The states are certainly, uh, you know, slapping at the trough. So you have to break that drip. And it's not just states. It's the people of the states. It's people that are dependent on the federal government for all kinds of things. And a lot of people get their money from federal contracts or from federal grants. Or So this is the most difficult part. How do you break that? And this is what I talked about with secession. People aren't ready for this because there will be a major economic disruption now because of how the federal government spends the money, the trillions of dollars it takes in and the trillions of dollars it spends, how it spends that money. Um, and the states and the people are directly involved in those allocations. So that would be the, the, the most difficult thing to break. It's, it's, it's a, an addiction that, that people have to the federal cash. The states are partly to blame for this. They take whatever cash Congress offers and they accept the strings that come with it. And they too are tyrants. The states mandated the unconstitutionally crippling lockdowns of 2020-21, not the feds. The states should be paying the political and financial consequences for their misdeeds, not the feds. They took property and liberty without paying for it as the Constitution requires them to do, not the feds. Bly's feared a government of 3,000. Today, the feds employ close to 3 million. Thomas Jefferson warned that when the federal treasury becomes a federal trough and the people recognize it as such, it will only send to Washington politicians, faithless to the Constitution, who promise to bring home the most cash. Again, this is what I just said. He's, he's, he's uh, Great minds think alike, right? I mean, this is, this is what's happening. And so that's the hardest thing to break. In a democracy faithless to constitutional guarantees, the majority will take whatever it wants from the minority, including the liberty, its liberty and property, right? So... How do you do this? Well, you got to have some check on that majority. And I think this is what Calhoun was talking about in his concurrent majority and what he was hinting at throughout his political life, particularly getting in the 1830s. So we, you have to protect minorities. And it could be a tax minority. It could be any kind of minority. It, it could be a, an identity, identitarian minority. You have to protect minorities from the majority because that's the only way to ensure fair and safe government. And once you can do that, we, we can't say this minority is more important than this minority. It could be people, I mean, look, people paying taxes. I mean, the, nowadays, less than 50% of the population pays income tax in the United States of the federal government. Now, it doesn't mean they don't pay taxes. Everybody pays taxes when you go fill up your gas, uh, your gas tank and things like that. Everyone pays taxes, sales tax. But the fact is, some people pay a lot more than others. And should they have some type of protection in that uh, when when you when it comes time for deciding how things are spent, um, and I think that's a, that's a fair question to ask. All right, so I thought this piece was really interesting, and I think tomorrow I am going to do that piece by Bill Watkins on the Ninth Amendment, and let's let's get into the Ninth Amendment and what it really meant. I'll see you tomorrow on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.